Acts chapter 14. The reading begins at verse 8. Let us pray. Gracious God, we pray now upon the occasion of your word being publicly read and preached. We ask that it would please you, Lord, and your great kindness and goodness to give to us the one thing most needful, to recognize your voice, to indeed believe and see the authority of God in these words, to receive them as they have been given, as the words of life. Help us, Lord, we pray. Give us ears to hear, hearts to believe, and wills to do. And we pray, O Lord, that as you sow your word among us, a harvest would spring forth deep and strong, bringing forth the fruit that you design and giving us such good seed, even the fruit of eternal life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 14, verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they were scarcely restrained, the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia 
and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. This is God's word. Please be seated. Isn't it wonderful how we keep finding these single sentences in the book of Acts that fitly describe what should be our life's mission? Right there, the last sentence, they remained no little time with the disciples. Oh, that tells us how to walk in love with one another, doesn't it? Well, this morning we come to a striking and wonderful and enigmatic passage of Scripture. Did Paul die? Or was he close to death? What was the purpose of going back to Lystra? And then back to Iconium, back to Antioch. The three cities that had just persecuted Paul and Barnabas severely. He returns to them all. What a wonderful revelation of God to his church. But I start with this. In 1926, Chesterton published a wonderful poem titled Child of the Snows, which celebrates the downfall of all the idolatry which once enslaved the entire world. His last stanza reads this way. The gods lie dead where the leaves lie red, for the flame of the sun is flown. The gods lie cold where the leaves lie gold, and a child comes forth alone. By the time Christ came into the world, the imagined gods of men had not brightened the world at all. They had only darkened it. It was a continuous season of late fall in the whole world. The leaf of knowledge was not green. As Paul says later in his speech at Athens, Acts 17.30, times of ignorance, he calls them, covered the earth. The days were short, the night was long. But then a child, a child comes forth alone. He is not a child who comes from below, from the darkened minds of men where their dead gods were born. Being above all, this child comes from above. He comes from the Heavenly Father. As the Father has life in himself, so he is granted the Son also to have life in himself. And this Son, this child of the snows, comes to give life to whomever he will. He comes now to the nations. He comes among the Gentiles. And men in those lands keep discovering that their old gods are dead and had always been dead. They keep discovering that the living and true God does not need their sacrifices. He does not need the blood of their children like Moloch did. He does not need the blood of their oxen like Zeus apparently does. He does not need the fruit of their orchards and their gardens 
He does not even need their temples. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. He himself serves. What a shock to the world of gods. The living God gives and he gives and he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he has now come to serve us by giving his life a ransom for many. Beloved, this is the starlight that will not be extinguished. This is the star that will not fall. And, it, and its light dawns on people who have been living in a land of deep, deep darkness. People like Lystra. And they keep turning from their lifeless gods to the living and true God who gives them himself in redeeming love and holiness. Well, this is what you have heard in our reading this morning. You heard how Christ from heaven opened a door, verse 27 says, opened a door to the Gentiles. That's how Paul and Barnabas described what happened in Lystra when they returned to the church in Antioch of Syria, the church that had sent them out back in Acts 13, 2 and 3. When they come back, they say, God has opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, which means the risen Christ was opening a door that most Jews wanted shut. We have just seen in this passage that the Jews from two previous cities Paul visited hustle to Lystra to stop Paul from preaching the good news there. But a door that the Lord Jesus opens cannot be shut by men. The Lord opens a door to the pagan nations, a door to places where the law of Moses was unknown. That's why the Jews were so deeply and profoundly convinced and right that those outside of the covenant people of God were in utter darkness. They did not have Moses. But the Lord is opening the door, a door to places where many, many gods were honored, but the living God unknown. Now, Lystra, which was a city in the region of Galatia, has an active temple of Zeus when Paul and Barnabas arrive. And they have a staff priest, the priest of Zeus. What happened? Christ pushed open the door, strode right through the gate. Christ sent his messengers of good news, Paul and Barnabas, And by the time these two left, the gods who are no gods at all, the gods of demons, were exposed for what they really were, and many of their human slaves were stolen away from them by Christ through the preaching of the gospel. And they were made, these former slaves, they were made beloved and free children of the living God by faith in Christ. Beloved, that is what has happened to you in this city. In your town, the gospel has reached you. It is just as dramatic and wonderful and unexpected as what happened in Lystra. You, by birth in sin, do not belong to the God of Israel. By birth in sin, you belong to the God of this world, the devil. 
But the Lord opened a door that no man can shut, and you heard the good news of salvation. When Christ opens a door of faith to those who are idolaters, how does he do it? Well, today's text answers. One, he does it by sending those who will preach the gospel. Two, he does it by sending those who will do good works. Three, he does it by sending those who will refuse to honor the counterfeit gods of sinful men. And four, he does it by displaying the worth of his son through the patient sufferings of his servants. Now, those are four points. And so keeping with tradition, I have a four-point sermon. I'm tricking you, aren't I? Sermons are only supposed to have three points. Well, this is the church of the bonus. Tell your friends, we get four points where everybody else gets stuck with three. And mine don't even rhyme or have alliteration. Look that up. I'm going to go back through those and show you each one in our text, make an application of each one to our own situation here in the 21st century. Why? Because, beloved, you live in a city where men and women are in bondage to gods who are no gods at all. And the gods of the 21st century are rarely now carved in stone. Rarely now are they carved in wood. They are now encased in ideologies, which is nothing new, actually, because all the wooden gods and the stone gods were ideas by demons set in the hearts of fallen men before they became wood gods and stone gods. The devil, in his cleverness, thinks that if he can put away from your eyes the statues and the carvings, you will no longer believe in him. But he has substituted those for a strengthening of the ideologies of demons in your hearts. So how does God open a door of faith to such men? First, Christ opens the door of faith by sending those who will preach the gospel. Look at with me at verse 9. Verse 9 describes the activity of two men before the miracle takes place. One is speaking, the other is listening. These are the chief and choice instruments of the risen Christ. Speaking and hearing. The lame man listened to Paul speaking, it says. What is he speaking? He tells us, if we didn't know already, in verse 15. In the kerfuffle that follows, Paul says out loud, we bring you good news. It's the Greek word, uangalidzo. Do you recognize a word in there? Uangelion evangelical, gospel. He is speaking, he is preaching the good news of God that through the eternal Son of God, who has been born of human likeness, the sins of sinners have been paid in the death of Jesus Christ. And now, through his resurrection, all who believe on him are reconciled to the eternal God, reconciled to his power, reconciled to his eternity, reconciled to his might, 
reconciled to his holiness, reconciled to him so profoundly, he is now their father. That's what he was speaking. Beloved, when Christ opens a door of faith in any city, any home, any place, any church, he will not do it. He will not do it. He will not do it without somebody bringing forth the good news of salvation. Paul did not come to Lystra to create a spectacle. He did not come to show people his biceps. He did not come to, like a sophist, stand up and show them the skill of his rhetoric and oratory following perfectly the form of Aristotle. He did not come to create a spectacle. He did not come to Lystra as a moralist, just simply coming to tell people how to tweak their lives so that they can be a little bit better than they are. He is no Tony Robbins. He came preaching the good news. He came to tell them how to come out from under the wrath of God and be reconciled to the very God who owes them his wrath. He did not come to Lystra as a philosopher. He came to bring good news. So Paul does not come with good things for them to do, but with good news for them to believe. Paul is so committed to this that he summarizes his entire ministry this way in 1 Corinthians one twenty-three, And you heard Steve Eldhorst say it in his prayer. We preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So where the gospel is being preached, beloved, God has opened a door. Praise God that in these cities, Appleton, Menasha, Nina, Grand Chute, Kimberly, Darby, Darboy, In all the cities I haven't named, there are churches of Jesus Christ proclaiming the good news that only in Christ is there salvation from sin and wrath. Now, if we keep trying to get to some city where there is no gospel preaching church and the Lord keeps preventing us by his providences, which happened, even in the book of Acts, we find that that happened to the apostles, It's because the Lord isn't opening a door there yet. For what reason, he knows. But the fact that we are hearing the gospel in our cities tells us how blessed we are under the kindness of God. Men didn't open these doors in our cities. They are secondary causes. God opened these doors. Let us remember, the door is not open. Even if there is clergy, high up in a pulpit with great austerity, saying important things, but not offering salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, it seems that I do this every two years. I tell the story of Donald Gray Barnhouse preaching through CBS radio, mid-20th century, coming through that little staticky radio all over the country on a Sunday Donald Gray Barnhouse, pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church, said 
Do you want to see a city that is completely taken over by Satan? I will describe such a city for you. And he went on without saying a word about Las Vegas. He went on without saying a word about Washington, D.C. He described a city completely taken over by Satan where the door is not open for the faith of the gospel. And he said this, in this city taken over by Satan, men and women are coming out of their homes on Sunday morning, dressed in their Sunday finest, moving down the sidewalks with an ambitious pace, but not too fast. They are smiling and saying good morning to one another. The children are saying please and thank you to their parents. Nobody has thrown gum on the sidewalk. There are no homeless people in sight. All the lawns look like they were mowed on the same day. I might be adding a few things. And then they all file into the churches of this city, and they fill up the churches, hardly a seat is empty. And the preachers rise up into the pulpits in this city, and Christ is not preached. That's the city where the door is not open. Jerusalem was not far from the mark when our Lord appeared there in sandals. Second, Christ opens a door of faith by sending those who will do good works. Look at verse 10. In a loud voice, Paul says to this man who has never walked, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And he began walking to his family. He began walking to his new job. He began walking to his needy neighbor with a loaf of bread. He began walking and cleaning up the city. He healed of his lameness, multiplied the good works. Do not missee what Paul has done through the authority and power of Christ. This is a good work. It is also a miracle, but it is a good work, and we know it should be called the good work because of how our Lord Jesus himself is described in the book of Acts. In Acts 10, verse 38, we heard these words a few weeks ago, that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Christ is with Paul in Lystra, so that Paul can perform this miraculous good work. And it is a good work you probably recognize that is identical to the good works that Peter has already done. In Acts chapter 3, Peter called a lame man to rise and walk in the city of Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 9, Peter called a lame man named Aeneas to rise and walk in the village of Lydda. And now Paul, showing that he too is among the company of the apostles, that he too is a messenger of Christ, calls this man in Lystra to rise and walk. In these three healings of the lame, Jesus Christ from heaven is demonstrating that he has taken up his life again through resurrection, not just for himself. This healing is a measure of the resurrection life that belongs to the king of life, in the kingdom of life. And Paul is doing this good work 
to bear witness to the authority and goodness of the king, Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of God in heaven. Beloved, when God opens a door of faith by sending those into idolatrous cities, the ones he will send will do good works. Not miraculous good works. The age of the apostles has ended. But God-given, God-created good works. Listen to Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christ's kingdom of life, and it is not a kingdom of death, Christ's kingdom of life is so rich, so full, it even spills over on the wicked, and they get to benefit from it. But not this man, not this layman, he is not among the wicked any longer, for he has faith. Paul sees it, and Paul raises him up. Why do we know that good works are the right thing to do in bringing the good news to idolatrous people. Well, look what Paul says in verse 17. He says, the eternal God has been doing good works among the wicked from the very beginning. Read it again. He did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. The apostles are simply imitating God. And the good works that have been prepared beforehand for you to do are your imitation of this very same one and true God. The Lord is testifying through this miracle, through this good work, that the kingdom of Jesus is a kingdom of life. This is what your good works do. When you go out into the cities where men are worshiping all sorts of demons, but they are behind a mask that says power, that says wealth, that says sex, that says knowledge, that says health, and they're worshiping these demonic, ideological, counterfeit gods, go and bring life to them. Extend some good to them. Imitate your God. Yes, bring the good news, but bring the good work as well. This is how the Lord from heaven opens a door of faith to idolaters. Three, Christ opens a door of faith by sending those who will refuse to honor the counterfeit gods of sinful men. We see this vividly in verses 12 through 14. After they identify Barnabas as Zeus and Paul as Hermes, no longer can Paul and Barnabas stand still. They rush into the crowds where these men of Lystra are praising them and deifying them. Why do they rush into the crowds? To receive slaps on their back? No. To silence them. When Paul and Barnabas heard of it, verse 14, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. They refuse 
to honor the counterfeit gods of sinful men. You see, the people of Lystra had heard just enough of Paul's preaching the good news to get it wrong. They had heard Paul saying something about God's son had come and walked among men in our flesh and likeness. But they had misinterpreted it. They had perverted it. They had twisted it. And they think that Paul and Barnabas are their gods in human flesh. Zeus is also the same as Jupiter, whom the Romans called him. The Greeks called him Zeus. Hermes was the messenger of the gods, so that's why they, that's why they assigned Paul that name, because he is the one doing most of the talking. What we see in the, men, in the messengers of Jesus Christ is an absolute refusal to take any honor for their good works. Beloved, it is necessary for us who proclaim Jesus Christ in the 21st century to refuse all men to be impressed with us. Because what will men do is what we see them doing in this passage. The men of Lystra who did this are not unique and peculiar men. They are ordinary men. And if we allow men to be impressed with us, they will esteem us for the gods that they truly love and worship, the counterfeit gods. It is a necessity if you are going to be a servant of Jesus Christ to stop all men when they look upon your wealth and say, tell me, how did your faith help you become wealthy? Can I go to church with you? They are not coming for Christ. They are coming because they love and adore the God of wealth. When they look upon you at your health, at the quality of your marriage, at the quality of your name in the community, men see the gods they adore. I encourage you, if you need more reading in this, to, you will not regret reading Counterfeit Gods by Timothy Keller. The gods of the demons are still alive and active in the earth. And do you see what's right before us? That men strengthen their affection for these demonic gods, not because Christians are not telling them the truth about Christ, but because in their darkened hearts, they will see our Christianity, our faith, as a stepping stool to a different God. And this is why some men end up in the church at 60 and 70 years old, and they find out for the first time that they had never been a Christian because the church was just a tool for them to get more of the God that they truly loved. Augustine, in his wonderful book, The City of God, speaks directly about this pursuit of counterfeit gods. Now, if you have never read The City of God, it could hold open a heavy door. It's a big book. But in the fourth century, it was one of the most excellent books written to show how the gods of the nations were defeated by Jesus Christ. In intricate detail, 
Augustine goes through it. But in this little passage where he's speaking of these things, he brings it down to the chief counterfeit gods of the human heart. The psalmist did not say, did not say, it is good for me to have great wealth, or it is good, to me, good for me to wear the imperial insignia power, or it is good for me to enjoy sensual pleasure, or as better men among them seem to say, the psalmist neither said, my good is my spiritual strength. No, he said, Psalm 73, it is good for me to be united to God. This he had learned from him, whom the holy angels, with the accompanying witness of miracles, presented as the sole object of worship, and hence he himself became the sacrifice of God, whose spiritual love inflamed him, and into whose ineffable and incorporeal embrace he yearned to cast himself. He speaks of the Lord Jesus. I want you to look at something under this third section that's in our text that is the most basic and simple duty of all of us in our calling to refuse to honor the counterfeit gods of sinful men. And it is right there in verse 15. You should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. That is the most basic duty we have, to call all the gods of men vain, empty, lifeless, to call all the ways of salvation that are not Jesus Christ as vain. That is our most basic, simple duty. And beloved, it will stir a city in some places or it will just simply cause a shrug in others. But it is a confession of the truth. All the ways of salvation outside of Jesus Christ, all the things men adore are vain, other than God himself. No matter what it shines like, no matter how heavy it is from the creation, it is not the creator. You know, somebody might say, but come on, aren't, aren't Zeus and Hermes kind of interesting? Well, I suppose Jeffrey Dahmer is interesting. But who would want to have a meal with him? These gods will eat you up. They will cannibalize your soul. They are not to be trifled with. They are interesting as a matter of historical study, but they deserve no adoration. They are lies. They are demonic gods. And the devil is only a murderer. He has no other setting. He wants to take men captive. In Galatians 4.8, Paul writes to this very church. Remember, Lystra is in Galatia as well. He says in Galatians 4.8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Enslaved. Not buddies, not cozy friends, not students of, enslaved. Death is the end of that enslavement. Eternal judgment is the end of it. This is why it's such a wonderful thing 
when Christ comes to a city like this and opens a door. Fourth, Christ opens the door of faith by displaying the worth of his son through the patient sufferings of his servants. What a remarkable turn of events in Lystra. One day Paul is a god. The next day Paul is dead. One even wonders if the Jews of Iconium who came and stirred up the people of Lystra to this violence, if they did so by saying, if he is a god, why don't you stone him? Using their own foolishness to inflame their violence. Stone him. Let's see if he dies or does not die. I think with Calvin, Paul does die. They drag his body through the city and get it outside the city where they leave it in a heap. It is rather remarkable that the Lord allows this rise and this fall, both on mountains and valleys of folly, to be poured out upon his servant in the city of Lystra. What does it mean? Why couldn't Paul make all of these men lame? He had just made a man lame walk. Why couldn't he have done what the Lord did to the men outside of Lot's house in the city of Sodom? Do you remember? He struck them all blind. Why couldn't Paul, in the authority and power of Christ, as they threw their stones, have all those stones pass over him and and hit one another, and they all fall down? The Lord allows Paul to suffer and die because the Lord loves his church. Who comes out to the body? The disciples. The newest believers of Lystra. They are the ones who come out and look and stand over the body because they are the ones who earlier Maybe it was a day, maybe it was a week. They heard Paul, and they heard Paul telling them that the eternal God gave his eternal son in our human flesh and put him to death under the weight of our sin and raised him up on the third day. They heard that, and it hooked in their heart by the Spirit of God, and they couldn't but go out and see and stand over him and hope against hope. And the Lord gave them, those disciples, a gift that he gave few others in Lystra. Reminds us of Matthew 11.25. Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. These little believers get to see Paul, spring up. The word is literally raised. The very Greek word that's been used all throughout Acts to describe the raising of Jesus Christ. Christ does not, Christ from heaven does not prove himself to men. 
just because men want him to prove himself. The Christian faith is not about staying alive. The Christian faith is not about avoiding troubles. The Christian faith is not about winning everybody to our side. Let's keep lowering the bar until we get everybody in, or at least more. That is not the Christian faith. That's something, but it is not the Christian faith. Let us understand what is happening here with Paul. The kingdom Jesus came to give to these pagan idolaters is not about raw power in the present age. His kingdom is about power for a salvation. Power for a salvation. Power for a salvation that will be most visible in the age to come. But this power comes to men now, in this present age, when they come to faith in Christ and endure tribulation rather than deny Christ. Now that is power. For a man to give up the whole world, for a man to not rage against those who will stone him to death, for a man to speak as Stephen did in Acts 7 when they were stoning him to death, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Stealing in good faith the words of his Savior from the cross. The kingdom is about power for a salvation that will be most visible in the age to come. And this power comes to men in this present age when they come to faith in Christ and endure tribulation rather than deny Christ. And beloved, Jesus must bring us. He must, our text says, There must be tribulation. He must bring us to long for and desire heaven as he himself longed for it and desired it. And we can only be brought to that when we see that he is there and he is worth more than all the earth and all the stars and all the time in the world and all the lives that we could live and never die. He is worth more than it all. He must bring us to that to enter his kingdom, and that is saving faith. So, how does God open a door? In lands that are thick with idolatry and the worship of counterfeit gods, he opens the door by sending those who will preach the gospel. This is what the Lord did here. He opens the door by sending those who will do good works, giving them a taste of the king of life and his kingdom of life. He opens the door by sending those who will refuse to honor the counterfeit gods of sinful men. You're doing nobody a favor by making Jesus blend in with all men's other ambitions. And lastly, he opens that door by displaying the worth of his son through the patient sufferings of his servants. Let us pray. How can we not thank you, Lord? You have opened the door of faith to us Gentiles. We come from the same stock. And we are so familiar with hearing the gospel and so familiar with our churches being so, so easily found and so everywhere about, around us. We've become a little bit dull to the amazing grace 
that has opened these doors to us. Father, we thank you. For if you had not opened the door, we would have remained in our sins. We would have remained under your wrath. We would have remained under condemnation, and we would have entered upon eternal death where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. We thank you that you open a door that no one can shut. We thank you for the love that is displayed to us in your zeal to open these doors to those who have nothing about them that would invite you to open them. But it is all about you and the greatness of your loving heart. Father, I pray that you would grant each of us renewed zeal for the doors that you have opened for those to have faith in Jesus Christ. Make us wise for these things and courageous for these things. Father, help us, even if it, for some of us, we'll begin with starting to pray at home with our families, that people that we know who are buried in wickedness and ignorance, that they would come to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Make us first evangelists in our prayer closets. And Father, help us never be ashamed of a ministry of preaching the good news, of a ministry of good works, of a ministry that refuses to honor the counterfeit gods of men, no matter how they are encased or carved. Let us never be ashamed of our sufferings, for in them we display before men the eternal life of Jesus Christ in us, that his embrace is more precious to us than keeping the world. In his name we pray, amen.